I will be reading from Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 to 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give it to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Um, In that hymn we sung earlier, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, there's a line in there. It says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Uh, The contest context there of Thomas Kelly who wrote to him is, of course, the cross. He who thinks of sin lightly, look to the cross. You must look to the cross. Sometimes we hear uh, the cross described as a symbol of just how precious we are to God. And in a sense, it's true. So long as we understand that We weren't that diamond in the rough that God saw. And he then irresistibly drew close to us. But we are indeed unworthy sinners. Deserving of God's just punishment, which is eternal torment in hell. Make no mistake about that. Now, while the, cr- the cross certainly shows us the depth of God's love, um, His love is entirely undeserved. You cannot merit the love of God. And anyone tempted to think that sin is no big deal or takes sin lightly must look at the cross to see what was paid to deal with your sin and gain a sense of just how great your sin is. How great my sin is. Now, there are those who mistakenly think, I don't have to be overly concerned for my sin. After all, 
I'm justified by faith according to God's grace. Thereby presuming upon the grace of God. Yes, we need to stand confident in the fact that we're justified by faith, but we mustn't presume upon God's grace. Now, other folks will develop a scale for sin by which they compare themselves to others. They will recognize glaring discrepancies in the lives of others and sometimes view themselves as their own hero because they haven't participated or practiced that particular sin, whatever that particular sin may be. They're quick to point out those who notice in the text, sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play around the golden calf, verse 6. They'll point them out. And, you know, perhaps they donated a golden earring so as to craft the golden calf, verse 4. But they didn't participate in the lewd celebration around the golden calf. So they now have a high view of themselves. Now, since they didn't happen to be in that circle, relatively speaking, their sin, in their eyes, isn't that bad. Still others are so overwhelmed by their sin, they actually become crippled, unable to imagine that God could possibly endure with them another day due to the besetting sins that we all have and all struggle with year after year. Exodus chapter 32 through chapter 34 deal with these very issues. So we must ask, how do we understand, okay, as fallen creatures okay, and as Christians redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, How do we understand the way in which God deals with our sin as we live quorum Deo? Quorum Deo is a Latin phrase that comes down through church history to us, which means before the face of God. Quorum Deo, before the face of God. That is, all that we think, all that we say, all that we do, all that we don't do is done under the gaze of God. Now, the fact that what we do privately, what we do publicly, is both known and seen by God, is first very comforting, right? Yet at the same time, can be rather terrifying. It can be very reassuring, and very frightening. Now, as we've witnessed through the Exodus account, we see that God is very much aware of everything that occurs in our day-to-day lives. Now, I can imagine that the Israelites, while they were in Egypt for 400 years under slavery, under bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt, they probably thought God was nowhere to be found. But the reality was, God was at work. 400 years earlier, according to the providential will of God, Joseph was sold off to slave traders by his jealous brothers, 
And that's how he ended up in Egypt. Now, eventually, through a great famine, 70 family members, the covenant community of Israel, end up in Egypt. And then God takes 400 years. This is 400 years of incubation to bring 70 people to a number too great to be numbered, making a nation of people which he would deliver, and he did. Through 10 sign judgments, he ruined Egypt. They rebuilt. That was God's providential will. And he leads them out of slavery. He brings them to Sinai. God knew the heart of Pharaoh. God knew Pharaoh would harden his heart. And God had decreed to harden his heart. God knows all things. God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai. Israel hears God speak the Ten Commandments. From chapters 25 to 31, for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is up atop the mountain with God receiving the intricate details of how he will dwell with his people and how they will enter into worship with him while Israel is here down below taking the initiative, deciding how they'll come into God's presence. He knows everything that's going on. And his omniscience was not restricted. His omniscience, his all-knowingness, was in no way restricted by the details that he was conveying to Moses. Because as he was conveying the details of the tabernacle to Moses, he points out to the the people in their sin, he says, Moses, go down. And then last time, we witnessed the tragic rebellion of the golden calf. We looked at the nature of idolatry. We looked something of the doctrine of sin. We could have taken all day with that. And we looked at something of God's wrath against both sin and the sinner. Never separate sin from the sinner because when God judges sin, he's judging sinners. And here, Moses has a conversation with God that, let's let's be real here. The conversation Moses has with God actually troubles many believers today. People make the mistake of only seeing God in his mercy. That's why they have trouble with texts like this. They only want to see God in his mercy and not in his wrath. They only want to see God in his love and not in his hatred. They'll say, the God of the Old Testament, he's a God of wrath. We prefer to see God through the New Testament, for he is a God of love. That's a misnomer, friends. Because God is one. And he is the same now as he was then. Now, our text this morning shows us, beloved, that God responds to our sin both with severity and mercy. Severity and mercy. Notice, the title of the message is Rebellion, Wrath, and Relenting. 
should be a question mark after relenting. We'll get to that. What we see is man's rebellion, God's impending wrath, and then God relenting. Question, does God change his mind? Well, hold that in your mind, and we'll get to that. In verses 7 through 10, we, we see the way in which God views idolatry and then how severely he responds to it. So while rebellion is going down below, God up above sees everything clearly and accurately. Friends, in other words, God knows our sin. Nothing escapes him. Nothing in your life, nothing in your home yesterday, nothing in your mind at this very moment escapes God. Look at Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So God sees what's going on with Israel, okay? Now, notice this. He sees what's going on. He he describes what they're doing. He describes to Moses what they're saying. And then he goes on to give a diagnosis of what they are, okay? Look at verse 7. Let me get to the text. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So in turning away from their God, in turning away from their Redeemer, God says they have corrupted themselves. That is, they've defiled themselves. They have ruined themselves. That is, beloved, they're destroying themselves. That's what God says. You know, whenever we give ourselves to idolatry, you know, we actually dehumanize ourselves. Okay, whether we bow the knee literally or figuratively, whether it's idols of the mind, whether it's your career or your wealth, whatever it may be, we dehumanize ourselves because what we're doing is we're turning away from the image in which we're made. For we are all made in the image of God. Made in the image of God are we. So bowing down to something created corrupts us. G.K. Beale great theologian of our day, uh, wrote a wonderful book entitled, We Are What We Worship. We Are What We Worship. And his main thesis in the book is this. And he writes, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. You see, we who are in Christ are being conformed into the image of Christ. So to turn away, as Israel did, we then corrupt ourselves. 
we dehumanize ourselves. After all, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, as you behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, you become like Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. So sin then, we're told, has the potential to corrupt us. Sin unchecked can ruin us. It can destroy us. Notice in verse 8, he says, they've turned aside out of the way. Notice that. They've turned aside out of the way. And the way being referred to here is the way of righteousness in contrast to the way of evil. So they've turned. Now, these are terms uh, that we often find in the wisdom literature of the Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, For example, in, in laying out the wisdom of God, Solomon writes in Proverbs 8, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. See, my way, that's the way of wisdom. The way of godly wisdom. As you walk this way, he goes on to say there are blessings. There are blessings. This is godly wisdom. However, Proverbs 16.25 says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. So, as we read Scripture, we, 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 we see it drawing a picture. There's a portrait of us, made in the image of God, as, as being on a journey. Amen? It's like pilgrim's progress. We're pilgrims, progressing. We're on a journey. And people who travel along can, can either walk in the Lord's way or, or turn aside and deviate. And as they deviate, they move further and further away from the one true God. You know why people get lost in the forest? They move off the path. They're walking down the path. I'm not a hiker, but I know some of you all are. And I don't know, they see a silver fox. Hey, look at the silver fox, honey. Let's go look at the silver fox. So they deviate off the path. They look, at the, they look at the silver fox, and they take some photos on their phone. And what's that sound? It's a stream. Look at honey. It's a brook. It's a stream. Let's go check out the stream. And they check out this. That moves into another thing. They've deviated off the path. Before you know it, the sun is setting, and they're lost. And then taxpayers have to pay for helicopters <laughs> to come and fetch you all. They've turned from the way I commanded them. Remember, just weeks ago from this point, they heard God's voice from Sinai. The Decalogue. The Ten Commandments. Spoken. And they've turned away. They've corrupted themselves. Now in verse 9, God provides a diagnosis of Israel. Notice. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. This is the first time this description is used for Israel, but it's not the last. 
they're repeatedly referred to being this way in the Old Testament. And it's a phrase that comes from the farming community of an ox or a cow that refuses to take a yoke upon its neck. So what it does is it bows up against its master. It bows up its back, it stiffens its neck, and it refuses to be harnessed, to be guided. And he compares these delivered people that saw all these great miracles of God The ten side judgments on Israel. Water provided out of a rock in the desert. Food, manna from heaven every day. Defeat of the Amalekites. All in a very short period of time. They see it all. They hear the voice of God. And he refers to them as a stiff-necked people. Never make the mistake of seeing Israel as those people. This is we people. Hosea, chapter 4, we read, Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Nehemiah 9, They and our fathers acted presumptuously. See, that's a problem when we presume. They acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Remember Psalm 106, verse 13, we looked at last week? They had forgotten what the Lord had done. You see, forgetfulness leads to sinful expectations, which leads to idolatry, which leads to debauchery. In Acts 7, Stephen the martyr, I pointed this out last Lord's Day. Now, Israel didn't literally return to Egypt. Stephen said this, referencing this account. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They made a calf and rejoiced in the work of their hands. In Psalm 78, Israel is described as being stubborn and rebellious, not steadfast, not faithful. And then, of course, in Proverbs 29 comes the warning. This is for us. Stiff-necked people can be beyond healing. You know, this is a dangerous position, especially for a Christian to be in. You know, these are those who refuse to listen to good spiritual counsel. They ask for advice, but they never follow it. They're stiff-necked. And they just continue in their graven path. They're constantly making excuses. Oh, you don't know my situation. They never change, and they never grow because they're stiff-necked. They never truly bow in, in, in submission to the Lord they confess with their mouth. They don't realize how stiff-necked they are. Dangerous place. You know, the problem in their mind is always someone else. It's always somewhere else. You don't know my situation. It's my husband. It's my wife. It's our children. And here's the big one. It's the church. The church. Bottom line, sin is serious to God. God cannot and will not overlook it. 
And here we see that he responds to it very severely. This is the same way a father would respond to his child when it picks up a rattlesnake and wants to play with it. Severely he responds. This is the same way a man would respond when another man comes along and attacks his wife or children. What man wouldn't severely react? I'll tell you what kind of man. A man who's no man. God acts severely. He reacts severely. Sin is what turned angels into devils. Sin is what caused God to flood the earth. Sin is serious. Sin is what caused God not to spare his only begotten son. The son of his love wasn't spared, and he never sinned. That's how serious sin is for anyone who thinks of sin lightly. Now, with that in mind, verse 10 shouldn't be so hard for for Christians to swallow. Verse 10. God says, let me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation out of you, Moses. How about that? So God is about to destroy a people en masse. In one fell swoop, he wants to destroy them and their sin. Immediately and comprehensively. He wants to bring disaster upon them and start afresh with Moses. Now, What you never want to do, beloved, we must never make the mistake of thinking that God is throwing a temper tantrum here or any other place where he's about to pour out his wrath because God does not react like we do. We just blow up. God doesn't just blow up. His wrath is not like that. You see, his wrath is a settled, reflexive opposition to everything and everyone that is unholy. For he is... Holy. He is holy. You know, some will read this and think it's too heavy. I've heard people say this is an excessive response of God. You know why? One reason. If you see it like that, you, that means you downplay sin. We downplay sin because we don't see sin in its right light. We call it mistakes. Right? We call it mistakes, missteps. After all, we say, nobody's perfect. That's true, but that's not how we ought to look at sin. And what we don't see is sin quorum deo, offenses in the face of God. Sin is cosmic treason against God. Sin is is, is a capital crime set against the creator. This is how scripture defines sin. And God defines sin as an assault against him. He's the creator. Infinite, everlasting. We're finite creatures made in the image of God. And in his face, we sin against him. So 
I don't think I need to stress the fact that God takes sin seriously. It's an, it's an assault upon his character, his holiness, his goodness, his kindness, and his love. It's an assault, an direct, direct assault. So here then, rebellion by those who bear his name has kindled his wrath. He's hot. His wrath burns hot, we read. So God's spiritual diagnosis of these people is that they're obstinate, they're rebellious, they're ungrateful, and they're forgetful. We get that from different portions of Scripture. And God says here, Moses, deal with it. I'm going to consume him, so let me alone. Notice, let me alone. In other words, Moses, don't bother entreating me. I'm going to turn these people to vapor. There's no need to beg Moses, no need to plead. Don't petition me. So the question is, is he going to dwell with his people as he said he would? I'll never leave you. Or will they be consumed? Notice, Israel's rebellion is met with the threat of impending deserved judgment. And here, it's counteracted. It's counteracted by the work of mediation. The work of mediation. Last week we said, without the mediator, Moses, Israel does not survive this incident. They can't survive without this mediatorial work. Notice verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Do you get that? Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and to consume them? From the face of the earth? You mean to tell me, after all that we Egyptians suffered in those ten plagues to deliver his people, now he consumes them in the wilderness? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Okay, what we see here, beloved, don't miss this. God reveals his wrath in a merciful way. God reveals his wrath in a very merciful way. God says, leave me alone. And the first thing Moses does, he busts through the door with an appeal. The very thing God said, don't do this, he does this. He makes a petition. He makes a supplication. He provides intercession on behalf of these people. So Moses takes his case, and he begins by appealing to God's fatherly affection. See this? Why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Remember, the Lord just called them Moses' people, go down. Now, there's something bigger behind that, which we'll see. 
Lord, they're not my people. They're your people. They've always been your people, Lord. Why? They belong to him by way of election and redemption. If you're in Christ, you belong to the Lord by way of election and redemption. And therefore, Jesus said, no one will ever, what? Snatch them out of the Father's hand, for I and the Father are one. Cannot be snatched. So Moses, notice he appeals to God's sovereign grace. Lord, you've brought them out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. There's sovereign, omnipotent grace. That's his first appeal. Then he appeals to God's present grace. Lord, turn. Notice, turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster. Then he appeals to God's own reputation. Lord, the pagans. Lord, the Egyptians. The Egyptians will say he brought them out just to kill them. And then lastly, notice he he appeals to God's covenant faithfulness. Remember that? Remember, Lord, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants. Israel, that's Jacob. Jacob's name God turned and changed to Israel. Your servants. Now, all along the way here, beloved, if you notice, Moses is not saying that Israel doesn't deserve the judgment. He knows they deserve it. But he's saying, God, remember your glory. Lord, remember your word. Lord, these are your people. Remember your promises. Turn from your anger. Remember, remember, remember. For he is a God who, what? Remembers. This is a great way, beloved, to pray for any, any of you who have struggling, straying children. Pray like this. Pray like Scripture prays. Lord, remember your faithfulness. Remember, Lord, your grace. Re- remember what you showed them back then. Open their eyes that they might see. Lord, bring them to repentance. Lord, grant them repentance. Plead, cry, beg. Why wouldn't you? Question. Could Moses, a mere man, keep God from destroying these people? No. Of course not. This is a finite, fallen, sinful man, Moses. If God truly wanted to blot them out, again, if God truly wanted to blot them out, he could have and he would have. Instead, God is is not only showing us what their sin rightfully deserves, he's moving Moses to respond. This is God's work, beloved. This is the work of God. Moving Moses to intercede in the place of these rebels. So by way of this mediation, by means of this intercession, Moses, that is, remember, standing in the breach? There's been a break in the dam of protection. There's a break in God's line of protection. And his wrath is seeping through. 
ready to consume these people. And in that breach, Moses stood. And with Moses interceding, standing in the breach, comes one of the most remarkable lines in all the scripture. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. We've seen the rebellion of the people. God's impending wrath that is due. And here now, God relenting? How can an omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, infinite, everlasting God relent through the prayers of a finite, fallen, sinful man? I mean, does God really relent? Does God truly regret? Does God ever change his mind? Does God ever change his plan? We could answer that question with a question. Does God change? No. No, absolutely not. But wait, right here it says, the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing upon his people. So at first glance, there would seem to be a conflict regarding the immutability of God. The immutability of God is the unchangeableness of God. He can't possibly change. His essence doesn't change. His attributes don't change. His purposes don't change. His consciousness doesn't change. So then the question, how do we then square this with the rest of Scripture? For instance, Malachi 3. I am the Lord. I do not change. Psalm 102. The heavens are the work of your hands, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you, you're the same. Numbers 23, 19. God's not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. James 1, 17. Our call to worship this morning. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is eternally unchanging. This we know. He does not grow in knowledge. Amen? He knows all. He is all. And he, he, he does not change what he has decreed in eternity past. Anything God can't do? Yeah, he can't change. Now, some people will use this Exodus account to argue that God does change his mind, and that's one of the arguments of open theism, which is a very dangerous doctrine. And what it teaches is that God hasn't truly foreordained all things. Open theism. God hasn't foreordained all things. He doesn't know the future, but he's working things out as he goes along. Open theism in a nutshell. Now, according to this particular text, one might say God changed his mind. Okay, but scripture, as we read it throughout, God's immutable. He doesn't change. So what is this? 
Okay, this is very simply in anthropomorphism. And that is language according to the thought of men. Language that is according to the thought of men. It's a figure of speech where human emotions and human patterns, human behavior are applied to God for the purpose of making a point. Are you with me? For the purpose of making a point. And let me tell you this. The point here is not that God, his plan, and his mind had changed, but rather his previously announced course of action is not going to be put into effect. It's not the point that Moses raised a few good points and God scratched his head and said, Man, Moses, I, did not, I didn't think about that. It's not as though Moses, in pleading his case, caused God to cry uncle, like with his arm behind his back. Oh, Moses, you got me on that one. You're right, I did promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, yeah. No, that's not it. That's not the point. The the, the point is, God, number one, he's not being capricious. This is just a mere reaction here. No. He's doing exactly what he said. For instance, in Jeremiah 18. Turn there. I don't think I have it up there. Jeremiah 18. Listen to this principle. Uh, Verse 7. Let's go back to verse 6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in a potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. I'm the potter, you're the clay. Do we know this? Okay, notice now. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. In other words, he says, whenever I promise something and you're presumptuous, I'll judge you. And whenever you sin and I threaten judgment and you repent, I'll receive you. So what we see This is God saying, I am the Lord, and I'm actually looking for an excuse to have compassion upon you sinners. Look, friends, it was never God's intent to destroy Israel, but it always was to save them because, notice, implied here in Exodus as well as in every other declaration throughout Scripture of impending judgment, is the offer of mercy. It's the offer of mercy. You remember Jonah? God called Jonah to himself. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, Nineveh, uh, the Assyrian people, who were a vile, wicked people who did un speakable things to anyone who would stand in opposition to them as well as to their own children. Vile, evil things. God calls Jonah. 
go preach this message. And what does Jonah do? He hates the Assyrians. He goes in the other direction. He gets on a ship, leaving for Tarshish. God draws up a storm, and everyone's panicking on the crew. And they throw him overboard, and he's swallowed by a, not a whale, not a whale, not a whale, an appointed fish. It's a fish appointed by God, a fish prepared by God to swallow a man. Yes, it really happened. Jonah was severely reminded in the belly of the great fish of the sovereignty of God. He's vomited up onto the shore, bleach white, from the acid, no doubt, in the belly of the great fish. Smelly. He goes on and preaches a very short sermon, much shorter than this one. Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. In 40 days, God said, I'm going to annihilate them. Question, is there any mercy in that message? No. It's judgment. God could have wiped them out. But what did he do? He sent a prophet. He sent a preacher. God didn't have to say anything. He could have just annihilated all of Nineveh. But notice, the king of Nineveh rose up from his throne and he said this in Jonah 3 verse 8. Look at it. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? Who knows? Okay, remember, this is not God's covenant people, Israel. These are pagans, evil, wicked pagans. Notice, this just shows you. I don't care where you live, how you're brought up, what about the pygmies in the deep jungles of wherever? They all have conscious awareness of Almighty God. Who knows? God may turn and relent to turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now remember, this made Jonah angry. Why? Why didn't Jonah go in the first place? Because he knew God was merciful and he didn't want the Assyrians to be shown mercy. He hated them. He knew preaching a message of judgment, God was showing his mercy. So he split. God caught up with him, amen? Was God really angry with Nineveh? Absolutely. You better believe it. This was not an idle threat, yet 40 days. God was greatly angered. However, when they repented in sackcloth and ashes, believing God, they proclaimed a fast, then he looked upon them in a different way. Just like he did with you. When he brought you to repentance, it wasn't some brilliant thought in your mind. Realizing the impending judgment due to you, you fall in broken repentance, because of his grace, because of his mercy. So God never changes, yet when we observe the changes in man, it appears as though God has changed. Right? If you get in your car, for instance, bright sunny day, 
Maybe you're up in Oregon somewhere and you're coming back to San Diego. Come on, honey. We're going to leave by sunrise. So you get in your car. When the sun begins to rise, you, the driver, the sun's in your eyes. Amen? Through the morning, it's in your eyes. And if it's in the middle of summer, up until about noon, you're burning the left side of your body. And then by late afternoon, your wife in the passenger seat, I'm presuming that men drive, no offense. (laughs) Your wife's getting burned. Did the sun move? Did the sun move? No, the sun doesn't move. You moved. You moved. So the immutability of God means that he is altogether consistent with his being, his character, and his purposes, for which there is no other way. He's consistent. He has to be. Meaning this, God who's sovereign ordains the end as well as the means, what? To the end. The mediatorial position of Moses was ordained by God, and Moses served as a means to God's end to spare the people. Now, if the secret purposes of God would have been to destroy Israel, they would have been destroyed. If God's purposes for, say, Sodom and Gomorrah were to be spared, he would have sent a preacher. But he didn't. And what happened? It rained fire and brimstone. So by God telling Moses to leave him alone actually gives Moses the opportunity to press in, to intercede. Because God already said to Moses, go down. Go down for your people have corrupted themselves. Go down, Moses. Your people have turned. These people have turned. And Moses stands faithful. That's why he called him to himself in the wilderness after 40 years of doing what? Shepherding. Sheep. In the land of Midian. And that's where God met him. Forty years of sanctifying grace in the life of this man to watch over sheep, preparing him to watch over sheep that bite. (laughs) The Israelites, people. Now, while they're down below, they're, they're trying to disown and separate themselves from his leadership. Go down, Moses. We pray, amen? Do you pray? Beloved, I hope you pray. Does prayer change God? No. Does prayer change things? Yes, it does. And although God has decreed all things, he's foredained everything that will come to pass, we can't let that reality, being disciples of sovereign grace, we, we can't let that reality keep us from praying. For prayer serves as a means to his end. That's why you continue to pray for your kids. That's why you continue to pray for for unbelieving loved ones. Because we, as a redeemed people, actually assist in accomplishing everything that he's decreed from the very beginning. We're not fatalists, beloved. We're Calvinists. We're not hyper-Calvinists. Hyper-anything is really dangerous. We've had people who've had hyper-views of things come to this church. They're very dangerous people because they carry with them very dangerous doctrine. Amen? Abraham wrestled with God. 
Remember, he tried to bargain with God as far as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah go. Lord, if there's 50 faithful, righteous, will you spare them? What God said? God, did God know whether anyone was righteous or not? God said, okay, sure, 50. Okay, well, wait a minute. It's a pretty evil place. What about 40? What about 20? What about 10? Okay, if there's 10, I'll spare it. There weren't 10. Is, is that information that was new to God? Of course not. Jacob wrestled with God, was a transformed man, because that was God's decreed will for Jacob. Amen? Moses, here, intercedes on behalf of these people. Okay, look again at Psalm 106. It's up on the screen, verse 23. He said, God would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, who chose him? Did Moses choose himself? God chose him. His chosen one, what was he chosen to do? To lead Israel, to mediate from Israel, to to intercede for Israel. God would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses stood in the breach. Now, never make the mistake, beloved, of seeing Moses as having more compassion than God. Okay? Never make that mistake. Never make the mistake of thinking that Moses desired the people to be saved and God did not. Don't make that mistake. What we have to see here is Moses embracing the love and compassion of the God who called him to himself. Amen? So this is God revealing his wrath in a very merciful way. God provided the mediator to intervene between his wrath and the people and their sin, which tells us it pleases God to show mercy. After all, what does the scripture say? What does John 3.16 say? Who so loved the world? God. God so loved that he gave his son. That's mercy. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Do they deserve to perish? Yes. Whoever believes, his wrath is turned. So this, beloved, shows us, this text shows us the depth of our sin, the greatness of God's grace, and the beauty of Jesus Christ. So here's Israel. Were they guilty? We talked about Nineveh. Were they guilty? Yes, they were guilty. How then were their sins covered? How were their sins blotted out? How were, was punishment for their sins atoned for? Okay, although God relented from giving them what they deserve, eternal torment and destruction, what happened? God redirected his wrath and anger towards another. Ultimately venting his wrath for Israel, the Ninevites, you, me, upon his son, who is a a greater and better mediator than Moses. Moses points forward. Moses foreshadows God's mediator, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Almighty God the Father says to Jesus, his son, go down to your people. They have corrupted themselves. 
go down. And the reason he says, son, go down, is because, you know, your people have corrupted themselves, is because we are his people. We're God the Father's people, and we're God the Son's people. So the wrath deserving of corrupted Israel, the wrath deserving of corrupted me and you, was taken by the Son in place of the people, his people. Who stands as God's only mediator? Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God. And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, is a ransom for all. Look, it is never, ever, ever mercy without justice. You get that? It's never mercy without justice. God never relents without satisfying his wrath. That is why Jesus said, of himself. I am the way and the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father except through me. No friends, not all religions, not all roads lead to God. Jesus is the only mediator. So anyone tempted to think sin is no big deal. Anyone who happens to take sin lightly must look at the cross. That's what this whole account foreshadows. To see what was paid to deal with your sin and to gain a sense of just how great your sin is. But greater than your sin is what? God our Savior. Greater than your sin and my sin is God our Savior. Much greater. So you must look to him and know that everyone, every last one of your sins, believers, Christians, has been paid for. And then, here I am, closing up, and then we can live quorum Deo in the face of God without trepidation, but with peace and joy. Amen? In the face of God because of Christ. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, Here its guilt may estimate. Look to Christ. Look to his cross. Trust him. The scripture says that ye shall be saved. From who? God. By God. His wounds forever declare God's forgiveness and his wrath have been forever satisfied. Turn to Christ if you don't know him. Come to Christ. Forget the religious stuff. Come to Christ by faith and you will be saved. Hymn 201. Hymn 201. 